Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. We're working our way through the book of Colossians. We're, we're winding it down. We've got two more Sundays after this in it. But today, we're working our way through the rest of, of chapter 3. And there's a little bit of a shift in the, the story and how the book begins to read as we come to verse 18 through chapter 4. And, and it's, it's almost like, you see, the test of... The test of theology is not just Sunday, it's does it work on Monday, right? The test of theology is not, does it make perfect sense when we're sitting in the church house on Sunday, but does it work, does it make sense, is it practically applied at home on Monday? And it's as if Paul is kind of leaning into that story and recognizing, yeah, that's what we need to do next. We need to apply it to what's happening in the home. And to do this, if I could, it's like Paul has has one big idea he wants to unwrap in this passage. And I'll confess to you, this passage is a lot. And we're going to dive into it. But if you want to sum it all up, you could sum it up this way. Jesus in us changes how we treat people around us. That's it. Jesus in us will change inevitably how we treat people around us. Especially, even, absolutely those who are closest to us. If you really want to understand the verses we're about to read, though, you've got to sort of transport yourself back in time. 2,000 years, the time of the New Testament. We're in Asia Minor, a part of the world that is dominated by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire's Uh, philosophy of pater familia, the head of the household, the rules of the household dominated. They were famously kind of espoused by Aristotle, but they were, and in many ways, still have an impact on us today. But at their worst, the pater familia in ancient Roman times meant things that we would just be like, whoa, It meant it was the law that enabled exposure where the head of a household, a father could decide just to abandon a child, a baby, a newborn, to exposure and death because they were unwanted. That was part of the pater familia. It meant that a father could sell a son into slavery. And a father had the right to simply end a son's marriage. Pater familia. And most notably, it meant that that father had the right to violently take the life of a family member if he felt like he had reason. It was, by all accounts, looking back, a gruesome set of rules 
Aristotle uh, had famously, and to understand this passage, you need to know a little bit about it. In his essay on politics, he talked about three groups. He talked about husbands and wives, about fathers and children, and about masters and slaves. He picked those three groups in his essay called Politic. And he talked about how this pater familia applied in those places. Now, with that background, you can see that Paul is about to apply the life-changing power of Jesus to the culture of the day. And he's going to apply it head-on. And what he's going to tell us is that Jesus in us changes how we treat those around us. And he's going to talk about husbands and wives. And he's going to talk about fathers and children. And he's going to talk about masters and slaves. Can you see why this is a difficult passage? Are you glad you're not preaching today? (laughs) I thought of passing this one off to Brittany, but I decided it was probably my responsibility. So let's jump into it. Chapter 3, verse 18, he goes right at it. He says, wives, submit your, to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Something worth noting here, when Paul wrote this, it would have been completely unsurprising. Nothing about that would have been shocking. And then he says, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. That, on the other hand, would have been surprising. That would have been counterculture. In some ways, the way of Jesus has crept in and pervaded our culture and changed our notions about, about marriage. But here, he's, he's, he's bringing something new. Jesus in us changes how we treat those around us. This command to husbands would have been surprising because the law codified something entirely different. But still to us, reading those first words, wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to those who belong to the Lord, is to us many times a little bit a little bit surprising, shocking to the modern ear. I think maybe the way to begin with this passage is to begin with what it's not saying, because oftentimes it's been used to teach things that simply aren't there. It's not saying you should endure abuse in order to be submissive. It's not applying this to all women, to all men. It's simply talking about a marriage relationship. In fact, I want to go a step further. It's not teaching some kind of inferiority. It's not even teaching the idea that a wife is an assistant to a husband, and he's the boss. I sort of hear that a bit when I hear teaching on these passages. Like, like, like there's an assistant and then there's a boss. 
But that's not really the teaching of Scripture. When I hear that and I press in with people who are asking that, I'm like, where do you come with that? I mean, where does it begin? Do you go all the way back to Genesis? And in Genesis, what chapter do you go to? And often they go to chapter 2 when the reality is it begins in chapter 3. I know that may be confusing to you, but let me explain. In chapter 2 of Genesis is where it tells us that God made a help meet. And somehow we've taken and interpreted these words, help meet, to mean some kind of assistant, like, like secondary. But nowhere does this Hebrew word ezer mean secondary or assistant. In fact, Every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used to describe a warrior who comes alongside and fights for you. In fact, half of the times this phrase is used, the phrase Ezer, that talks about a helpmeet, it's used to describe God who comes to our aid as a warrior and fights for us. That's the context of chapter 2. In chapter 3, though, we have the fall, and we have the entrance of sin and the brokenness and the conflict that enters into relationships. That's where we find this tension and this order in the marriage relationship beginning. You see, if you really want to understand what Paul is doing here, you probably have to take it in context. Remember, we've said this before, text without context is pretext. In other words, if you take one text out of context, you're probably just making up what you want to say. If you put it in context, you get a greater sense of what Scripture is ultimately teaching. And Paul expounds on this in Ephesians chapter 5. He takes this idea and he unwraps it. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 is the verse that I most often choose to read at marriages because I think it's the singular verse that gives us the advice that we need in order to live together in a broken world where conflict, conflict, conflict is inevitable. Let me read to you chapter 5 and verse 21. Here's how Paul explains it. He says, and further, he's talking to husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is his model. This is his idea. This is what it looks like when a husband and wife come together in marriage. And out of love for one another and out of reverence for Christ, they submit themselves one to another. That's the ideal. That's the redemptive vision that God is moving towards. Does it always work that way? No. I mean, we're trying. Tim and I got 31 years, and we're working on it. Man, we're still a work in progress. I'm, I'm afraid to like say that because the reality is, man, it's a, it's a, it's a fight sometimes. And Tammy and I got married. We had never, <laughs> honestly, it's a true story. While we were dating, we had never fought, never. It like, didn't have a crossword. I don't know how that was possible. We just didn't. We were on our best behavior. And then literally, we got married and went on our honeymoon and fought for seven days straight. 
We went to Aruba, and it's the reason we've never gone back to Aruba. I have lots of friends who go to Aruba. I'm like, it's a miserable place. Every memory I have of it is bad. They're like, we love Aruba. I'm like, really? Because, yeah, when I think about it, it's just, yeesh. We were, we were wrestling it out like two people coming together and verse 21 wasn't a part of our, a part of our lives. And the truth is conflict creeps in and the reality is we don't always live out God's ideal, his ideal that husbands and wives submit to one another out of reverence in Christ. We, we don't always live that out. And so he's got a backup plan. Let me read to you, since I've already read about wives, let me read to you specifically what Paul says about husbands in verse 25 of Ephesians. He follows up by saying this, For husbands, this means love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her. See, you put this together and you've got God's plan for navigating in a fallen world, like in a world that's full of conflict. You say, well, how does that, how does that go together? And maybe it goes together like this. Husbands are called to sacrificially love, sacrificially love, sacrificially love their wives, and wives are called to let them. Well, that's a different look, ain't it? <laughs> Guys started out liking this message, and now they're like, mm, mm. Go back to verse 18, would you, right? Husbands are called to sacrificially love. Same way Jesus did. It's as plain as day. Like, listen, you just you get to go first and sacrifice. And wives, you should you, you should allow for that. You should you should let him let him do that. And and this is, this is how we navigate fallenness. But I hear, I hear couples say, if you've said this, don't, because I've said it. All right. All right. So I've said it, but I'm not sure it's the highest idea. The highest idea is like, like, like what this means is that like, if we're arguing and there's a disagreement, he gets the final say. Really? That's the best we can do? I don't think that was God's redemptive ideal that we would have a tiebreaker. Like, you know, you come down and it's a 50-50 vote and the vice president gets to pass the, the side. It's not, that's not, I don't think that's what it's meant to be. I think what it's meant to be is that we would, that we would live in mutuality and sacrificial love one for another. Man, Paul's not done. He's going after all three groups. So next he says, uh, in, in in verse 20, he says, Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Now, this isn't, this isn't surprising to us, and, but in the day, the next part would have been surprising. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. And don't, don't, don't discourage them. <laughs> I've been reading that verse all week and thinking, how in the... I mean, anybody guilty? Man, don't aggravate. Aggravate? I've gone beyond aggravating, Paul. I mean, just confession, right? Don't discourage him. Jesus in us changes how we treat those around us. <laughs> 
Maybe the way to think of it is this. How has Jesus discipled you? You know the word that came to my mind this week? Patiently. He has been patient with me because you'd have thought I'd had it righter than I got it. Patiently. Next, Paul wants to move on to masters and slaves. In fact, he, he devotes the most time of all to this topic. And for us, in a world that has rightly come to a better place, though not a completely redeemed place on the issue of human trafficking, We see these, and we are taken back by them. But let me read it to you, and then let me try and apply something that I think is is significant for all of us. In verse 22, Paul says to slaves, again, he tells them what would have been unsurprising to the powerless. He said, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. That would have been unsurprising. Like, what option did they have? Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear for the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember, oh, this would have been surprising. Remember, the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done. For God has no favorites. And then chapter 4. I don't know why they put the division of chapter 4, verse 1. Those were added after the Bible, so just bear with me. Because it completes the thought. He turns his attention to masters. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. There's a couple of things that are probably worth saying as we walk through this passage. First, I want to just draw you back 2,000 years. The slavery of the New Testament was significantly different than the slavery that we're familiar with from American history. It wasn't ethnic Anybody could have become a slave and often did. It was generally either military or economic. You were either conquered in a military battle and made a slave, or you were sold into slavery to pay a debt, often selling yourself into slavery to pay a debt. But there was always some kind of path to freedom. And yet still, it was wrong. Every bit of it was wrong. And if you're like me, when you first read these passages, you just want it to simply condemn it, full stop, end of the story, and move on. And it doesn't do that. And it's worth considering why it doesn't do that. You see, again, text context tells the whole of the story. 
What God was doing in the world is he was changing hearts in a way that would change the world forever. He was moving them forward incrementally, step by step, because here's the truth. Jesus in us changes the way we treat people around us. There's a term for this. We call it redemptive movement. Hermeneutics, for those who love Bible study, hermeneutics isn't like a girl band. It's a, it's a way of understanding Scripture, the historical grammatical method, maybe the most famous for most of us. But there's a hermeneutic that helps to understand Scripture called redemptive movement. It simply says that you can look at Scripture and you can see God moving us incrementally from here to here to here to here towards his redemptive vision for what was meant to be. It's sort of like planting a seed, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's planting a seed. And when you plant a seed in that garden, the first thing you do is you, you dig it up because you want the fruit that comes from that. And, and one thing you could do is you could just give them fruit. But when you plant a seed, you're creating life and you're creating something that will continue to bear fruit. And you plant the seed. But when you first plant the seed, it doesn't look like much. It just looks like, looks like dirt. And, and then after a little while, maybe something sprouts up and we see a little, but it's not, it's not bearing the fruit. It's not the full picture. It's not the, the good stuff that we want to see. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of slavery. That's what we want to see. But Paul is planting a seed and the seed is growing and that seed will grow into something that will change the world forever. In fact, this passage is beautiful because when you put it together with another passage, it reveals how this redemptive movement comes together. You see, the church at Colossae was small. It met in a home. It met in the home. It actually turns out we know the name of the person whose home it was. It met in the home of a man named Philemon. We don't, we don't know if Philemon was the, the pastor or the leader, but we know the church met in his home, and we know something else about him. We know he owned slaves, at least one. And we know that because at the very same time Paul writes the letter of Colossians, he writes another letter from jail right about 60 AD. I can imagine he's sending off a letter to the church to be read for everyone, Colossians, that includes this verse, masters, treat your slaves this way. And at the same time, he sends a personal letter to Philemon. It's in your Bible. It's one chapter long. And he says, Philemon, I've got something to talk to you about. You see, Philemon had a slave who had escaped, run away. His name was Onesimus. And he had found his way to Paul, where he had become a believer. And his life was being transformed. But he was a fugitive, on run from the law. And Paul is sending him back with a letter a letter for Philemon to read. And let me show you what the redemptive movement, it's like Paul saying, listen, because Jesus is in you, Philemon, it is going to change how you treat 
people around you. So here's what it says in Philemon chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. He is no longer what he used to be. Treat him like you would treat me. He is your brother. You see the redemptive movement. Paul is saying Jesus in us changes how we treat people around us. And Paul was planting a seed that would upend the way the world worked through Jesus Christ. Redemptive movement, step by step. Let the church be the place that shows the world what can be. Philemon, let it start with you and Onesimus. Show them what it can look like. I wish there was a Philemon too. There's not. I wish there was something. I want, I, want, I want Philemon and Onesimus to sit down. And history tells us, we don't know if it's true, history and tradition tells us that Onesimus went on to become uh, the bishop of the church at Ephesus. And he'd become such an agitator for the gospel that Rome would imprison him and martyr him. We don't know how all the details play out. But here's what I think I can say. If Philemon and Onesimus were to sit down and they were to look at us and they were to say, listen, listen, this is what God is doing in the world. I think they'd tell us a couple of things. I think they'd tell us what is isn't always what's meant to be. You shouldn't just capture the picture of the world the way it is. You should look for that redemptive picture of what God wants to be for husbands and wives, for fathers and children, for parents and children. You should look at what God is doing in the world. What is the vision for what he wants it to be? I think Philemon and Onesimus would tell us that Jesus was counterculture, and he still is. I think, I think they would tell us that Jesus is going against the flow, and if you're going to follow Jesus, I don't know how else to say it, the flow is not your friend. Culture's moving, 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 and often in order to follow Jesus, you're going to find yourself fighting against the culture, moving in the opposite direction of the stream. And I think they would tell us we're accountable. 
We're accountable to Jesus. One of the things I love in this passage is eight times. Eight times all through this passage, he reminds us about Jesus. He says, those who belong to the Lord out of reverence for Christ, your reverent fear for the Lord, working for the Lord. The Lord will give you an inheritance. You are serving Christ. You also have a master in heaven. Over and over and over again, he's invoking the fact that it's Jesus in you that changes how you treat people around you. You are accountable to Jesus, and he changes everything. I think that's what they tell us. Years ago, when our kids were real little, we were at one of these local beaches here in Falmouth that has one of those kind of lazy tidal rivers when the tide is coming in, the, the river flows into the salt marsh behind it, and when the tide is going out, the, the river flows out into the ocean. And they're great fun for kids, and the kids like to line up on it, and, and they'll, they'll get out their, their paddle boards, their little boogie boards, and they'll float with the river. This day we were there, the, the tide was coming in, and it was flooding into the marsh, and the and the, the current was great. It was just, it was, it was perfect. It was great fun. And, and we're watching the kids and they'd get out of the water and they'd run back up the river and they'd jump in and then they'd float down the river and get to the bend and they'd jump back out and they'd get back in. And mom and I are, you know, doing our best parent bit from the shore and watching them and, you know, reading books and doing whatever you're doing on the beach and they're going down. And, and all of a sudden, one of them, and I don't remember I don't remember which. Was it you? No, it wasn't you. <laughs> I, had to ask. I didn't know she'd be sitting on the front row. It's one of those younger, irresponsible siblings. Just went a little bit too far. Just got turned around the bend and got caught in the current. And I mean, I, I like caught it. I, I saw, I'm like, I'm waiting, waiting, waiting for them to like jump off, get out where, where you can stand up, walk to the shore and and they didn't. And the current is moving. And the river, the river around the bend gets deep. It gets deep for me. And, and they're little. They're like five, six, seven years old. I don't remember exactly the time. And I just remember watching it. And I, and I'm, I'm looking and I'm, you, you know how you are as a parent. You're like, they're going to get out. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to get out. They're, no, they're not getting out. They're not getting out. Right. Not, and, and I'm, and I'm getting up out of my chair and I'm following and I'm following. And, and then I realize, I realize that, that they're just clinging to the board, like all they can do. They're, they're caught in the current. They're running down the current. And now I'm like a madman. I'm like, I'm like running, jumping through the water, screaming my head off, mad at the people who see her and are like, this is a little kid. Like you're there. She's like floating by him, somebody. And, and I'm getting out there and I'm realizing how deep the water is and I'm going to have to swim. And she's got like a, 20 yard head start and I'm like running after to try and rescue her and just about the time she took another bend there was somebody down there that was like fishing or something and grabbed her and I have water phobia issues if you didn't know I mean I was like in panic I think of that when I think of of this this passage and this this idea You can get caught in the culture. You can get caught in the current. You can just get, get going with it. But following Jesus 
Following Jesus sometimes means that we're going to go in the opposite direction of the current. And sometimes it means that to, to rescue someone or to, to, to rescue what's happening in your life, you're, going to, you're just going to have to drop all pretense of being calm, cool, and collected and be a madman or a madwoman. You're just like all in. Like, like this, is, this is not going to end well. This is not the way I was meant to live. This is not who Jesus called me to be. This isn't what he called our marriage to look like. This isn't what he called our, our home and our relationship with our children. And It's not how he called us to relate to the world. Jesus in us. Changes how we treat those around us. It changes everything. And Paul is taking this from Sunday to Monday, from the theoretical to the practical, from the church to the home. And he's saying, husbands and wives, Jesus in you changes how you treat one another. Moms, dads, with your kids, Jesus in us. Whew. That's tough. Changes. It changes us and how we raise and disciple our children. In fact, if we could take that last one of slaves and masters and apply it across every relationship we have where we have power and strength and opportunity, Jesus in us changes how we treat those around us. Jesus is everything. Would you bow with me? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Oof. What a passage. It's more than meets the eye, though. It's a story for us, and maybe this week, maybe this week it's a, it's a story about marriage for you, about husbands and wives. About Ephesians 5.21, about submitting ourselves out of reverence for Christ. The mutuality of love for one another. Maybe it's a message about parents and children. Maybe we just need to be reminded of the patience that God has poured into our lives so that we could pour it into theirs. Maybe it's a reminder to all of those who have power and authority in your life that we would use it as though it were given by Jesus. Father, we believe this. Jesus in us changes how we treat those around us. 
it affects every relationship. So, Father, we just ask in this quiet moment that you would you would whisper into our hearts and shout where necessary. And that we would be reminded that there is in Jesus Christ a better way. And we would see your redemptive vision, the fruit that you want in this world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're not done. That what is, isn't what's meant to be. Thank you for Jesus. We pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.